0: Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folktales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back. Before we begin this episode, I've got two warnings for you. Firstly, the episode does contain some very mild and non-graphic depictions of sexual violence. Secondly, it's a real mess of a story that meanders all over the place and has very little form that you might expect from a decent tale. But if neither of those two warnings put you off, then please enjoy the tale of Robin Goodfellow, his mad pranks and merry jests. ''So, are you sure you don't know?'' asked the midwife for about the fourth or fifth time. The young woman looked the accusatory stare down. ''I've told you, no man has touched me.'' She held her belly. She was a few months into her pregnancy. ''This child belongs to none but me and the king of the fairies, Oberon, who visited me.'' ''Yes?'' ''Of course, dear.'' Well, if you can't give me the man's name, you could just say any name, out loud, unrelatedly. And maybe I just happened to guess, and then we could... No, no. Oh, well, as you wish, dear. It wasn't exactly uncommon, of course, this sort of situation. Fairies and selkies and incubi and storks, and on at least one well-publicised occasion, Almighty God, Lord of all creation, the heavens and the earth. All of them have been known to have a hand in pregnancies, and more often than one would like it, it was the case that these curiously absent fathers would prove to be far superior to their more earthly and present peers. And of course they made for interesting reading in the birth section of the parish records. So the father of this child would go down in the records as the fairy king. A few more months passed. And when it came, the birth was as easy for this young single mother as such an ordeal can ever be. And the midwife was pleased to welcome into the world a bouncing baby boy. I'm always unsure about that phrase. He was fine. And now the exhausted mother sleeps and the midwife cradles the infant. It was a modest cottage. Certain people might have called it Bijou, though no one did as fortunately for the people of this time, estate agents had yet to be invented. It had but two rooms, the one with the bed in it, and the one with everything else in it. And when the midwife set the babe down for a moment and wandered into the other room, she was somewhat alarmed to find it packed full of stuff. It distinctly hadn't been full of stuff just before the birth, a few hours before. She was an old woman, long in the tooth, and took everything in her stride, But she gave out a little gasp all the same. There were linens for beds that the cottage didn't have. There were chairs stacked upon one another, cushions and carpets and a huge new table that took up all the rest of the room. And on top of it, meats, breads. And was that wine? Bottles of the stuff. The midwife turned around, open-mouthed, to find the new mother sitting up in bed looking at her and the suddenly laden room behind her. The mother gave a shrug that managed to convey, told you so. King of the fairies, she said. (music) Mother and child soon found themselves very popular. People didn't bother to hide the reason for this, and they also completely disregarded all the many, many warnings that the culture had tried to impress upon them about eating fairy food. It just turns up every night in the kitchen, they reasoned. Wasn't necessarily fairy. Could be anything. Yeah, there's the werewolf in Scotland that brings people fish, said one knowledgeable local. Probably just that. Not fairy food at all. But this is Kent. And this isn't... Yeah, but what I'm saying is, well, just, just eat it anyway. Fairies with children get a pretty bad rap. But in this case, the king was, well, he wasn't being present for the upbringing of his son... But he was compensating massively for this with all the gift-giving. And every day, when the wares didn't turn into ashes or toadstools or something, the mother was content enough. It could be far worse. Now the day of the christening arrived pretty soon for our young tyke. And on this day, the mother, the clerk and the priest, and all the new friendly neighbours, found an even greater selection of good cheer had turned up than they had grown used to. The gathered crowd saw all the fairy booze. Christening party time! And they did not hold back. the guests awoke, gradually, gingerly. It might have been the next morning, could have been the early afternoon. It turned out that the previous night, none of them had removed their clothes before falling asleep. Which was, A, convenient, why don't we do this more, saves time. And B, fortunate, for modesty's sake that is, as they had kind of fallen asleep on and around each other. I'm not quite sure who was minding the baby. It wasn't the mother, who was in a similar state to that of her guests. But the boy was fine, which was relief all round. Oh hey, what a night, said the clerk, before being uncontrollably and violently ill in the small space. Ah oh, yeah, that baby, what a great baby he is, said one guest. Yeah, three cheers for that. Um, what did he call him again? Ooh, ooh, my head. The baby's mother sat up, blinking, the world spinning. Yeah, that baby, what did he call him? asked another guest. Mum, who could barely remember her own name, which explains why I'm not using it, fished around in her head for the word. They'd christened him, so there must be a name in there she'd settled on. She dived deeper into the murky recesses. Um, oh you know... What the priest said. Priest, that name. You said, my son's name. From his resting place slumped against the wall, the father said, I obviously remember, Um, um, it it would be began with a D, or could be a B, he ventured, in much the manner of an amateur mentalist desperately hoping for someone to bite. As this was all going on, the clerk, showing a certain presence of mind, reached around the floor for the book he always carried. It was there, slightly stained, smelling more than a little potent, but there. He turned to the last page. One word was written upon it. "'Robin!' he declared to all and sundry. "'We called him Robin!' "'Way!' Hey, went the room collectively, followed by collectively going, oh past the bucket!' and so Robin was christened. Unfortunately for the people of that small village, after the christening the fairy gifts dried up. Whether our fairy father didn't like the smell of the church on his son or if he just got distracted with some other otherworldly business, we can't say. But from that night onwards, gifts failed to appear in vast piles. But the baby still needed bringing up, and the mother, unused to wealth, hadn't sensibly invested her fairy furniture in a trust fund. So back to work she went. And young Robin grew. <laughs> Years passed. His mother worked hard and raised the boy alone. The elves in the wood didn't help at all. We rejoined Robin when he was six. And now he was six. He was clever as clever, and the young boy delighted in nothing more than knavish tricks. The extent and exact details of such tricks have been lost to the mists of time, but we can be sure that these were not the normal high spirits and misbehaviour of your regular child. I'm sure that we're talking full-on Dennis the Menace slash Kevin McAllister-style tricks. A danger to property, life and limb. But Robin was smart enough not to be caught by the mother he still feared. But she knew he was no angel, for she received a steady slew of reports from the generally outraged citizenry whenever she left Robin alone, and so she was obligated to take him with her wherever she went. But even then, whenever her back was turned, we hear tell of funny faces being pulled, and the clapping of Robin's hands to his backside, accompanied by aggressive swaggering thereof. And so, eventually, she threatened to punish Robin, to give him a good spanking. And, reasonably enough, yes, childcare standards have changed, and now such things might be frowned upon. And we would encourage use of reason... But even in these enlightened times, operant conditioning is still an acknowledged tool in the socialisation of one's children. And faced with the prospect of this, Robin did the only thing he could reasonably do as a six-year-old. He ran away. And he impressively runs away. I once got halfway down the street as a child before my parents noticed I'd properly called their bluff and came running after me, and I'm proud of that to this day, but Robin managed to go a whole host further than that. At this point it's worth interjecting that, like a number of fictional child characters – Kof and McCool – the process of ageing and maturity was, for Robin, more a tepid suggestion than an immutable law of nature, and one he had opted to ignore. So away Robin goes, off on adventures. And his mother, the single mother whose admittedly mature six-year-old boy has just fled from her, well, she felt awful. Though she had done little that could really be called wrong, her son had left her and she was all alone in the world again. And we never hear about her again. And honestly, that kind of breaks my heart. I hope over the months and years she recovered from her loss, the sickening feelings of guilt, the confusion, the heartbreak, that she rebuilt her life. I can hope it, but I can't guarantee it. But as for Robin, he was having a great time! He'd wandered further away from his mother's house than was really right or proper, far away enough that he could never be found, and when hunger had finally come upon him, he took the sensible course of knocking on the first door he saw. Now if this was many fairy tales, then we could be sure Robin's fate would have been a decidedly grisly one, at the hands and jaws of the kind of people who wait for lost children to approach their houses. But this was not one of those tales and Robin was no usual lost child neither. The house belonged to a man who made his living as a tailor and either he asked no questions or he was easily deceived by some lies of Robin's for he didn't try to unite the boy with his mother but instead took this child of indeterminate age on as his own apprentice. And for a little while our half-fairy lad applied himself whole-heartedly to his new role. It was a tailor's life for him. And after some years he actually got pretty good at it. Maybe the tailor took on the role of a father figure, or some Freudian nonsense like that. But whatever the reason, Robin had success at his newfound profession. And it all meant diddly-squat in the end. Because one day, he threw it all away. Just like that. Was it intentional on the part of our young Robin? This storyteller doesn't have a clue. I'll tell you the tale and perhaps you can make more sense of it than I. It starts with an order for a dress. And it seems, like all the most up-to-date modern manufacturers, the tailor was a big fan of just-in-time production, for he had a commission to be ready for the very next day, and no ordinary commission this. Nope, this was a wedding dress. Now, I don't know if the tailor had sat on the order for days, or if our bride-to-be was engaging in some kind of early medieval Vegas-style wedding shenanigans. But no matter the reason, it was tomorrow it had to be done by. Now, like a famous namesake, the tailor was swift, and he worked the whole day through, Robin assisting him as he could. However, it was an intense day of tailoring, well into the candle-lit night, and by the twelfth hour our tailor's energy was, alas, quite failing him, and it is no good time to be working when your eyelids keep obstinately covering your eyes. But luckily by this point there was barely anything to finish off, and what there was was easy enough that the young lad could assist. Robin, <sighs> said a yawning tailor, Robin, it is almost done. And I'm going to quote the tailor's words verbatim here, because this is important, so please do mark them well, dear listener. Quote, <sighs> I will go to bed now, Robin. But as for yourself, whip the sleeves on the gown, and then come thou to bed. Roger that, Chief. Robin is on the case. And no sooner was his master off up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire than Robin had hung up the dress, took into his hand the as-yet unattached sleeves, and, with great relish, started to whip the rest of the dress with the sleeves. I know, I don't really understand it myself. It just doesn't seem like an easy mistake to make, does it? As linguistic misunderstandings go, it's a fairly hard one to justify in any way. Maybe this whole thing works better in an older version of English? I don't know, but I doubt it. Robin not only wildly misinterpreted or willfully disobeyed the first part of the instruction, but did the same for the second part, as he failed to go to bed at all and indeed he was still whipping the dress with the sleeves when his master came down in the morning. The dress, by this point, was in a very sorry state. It's difficult to convey the full horror the man must have felt. Having treated this boy so well over many years, to be rewarded with whatever the hell this was. The tailor stood for a moment, opened and closed his mouth silently a few times, like a trout on a mute. Eventually he came out with, whatever have you done? Robin looked at his master, straight-faced. Earnestly he replied, whip the sleeves on it, just as you said. Control calm, breathe I meant that you should attach the sleeves to the dress swiftly well I wish you'd said I wouldn't have lost all this sleep would I he didn't add just a merry jest isn't it you know mad pranks and merry jests and potentially japes too just a joke, lighten up old man but he may as well have The tailor's temples suddenly felt very tight. He could feel and hear the blood bumping around his body. From somewhere deep inside, a rage began to build. But before it could spew forth in all its uncontrollable fury, there came a knock at the door. A woman's voice. Have you got my dress ready? Panic! The tailor took the dress into the back room of the cottage. Oh yes, just coming. He let the blushing, last-minute bride in, sat her down in the parlour. So, where is it then? The tailor tried to buy himself some time. Perhaps you want breakfast first? Oh, actually, I haven't eaten anything for ages. Wedding, you know, that'd be great. Robin, said the tailor. Go and fetch the remnants from yesterday and bring them through for my lady, he said, meaning the remnants of the meat from yesterday's meal. And still, apparently the tailor had not learned his lesson, which was a tiny bit about being precise in his directions. But the whale's portion of the lesson was that his apprentice was a nasty, untrustworthy piece of work. And of course, Robin returned a few moments later with the remains of the dress. The tailor sagged, utterly defeated, his reputation soon to be in as many pieces as that garment. The young bride looked at the remnants, sat herself back in the chair. Well, this was a thing. She seemed to take a somewhat stoic view of events, always just in shock. I tell you what, boy, why don't you go and get some wine and bring it back here? Then we can have a good breakfast. Yeah, a lot of wine is probably what we need right now. So saying, she gave some money to Robin to get the wine with. He took it, and never returned. And now, if you're anything like me... You're really quite angry with this young man, who has, for reasons barely comprehensible, caused great suffering to his real parent, and now his loco parentis. I believe what we're meant to take away from this is the nature of a fairy child, abandoned by his father, containing the fae nature within him. He is unhappy to be bound by the rules of human society that are just designed to keep you down. Rules like, just maybe don't be horrible to people who love you for no reason. Yeah, sticking it to the man, fairy child. You're a rebel. So cool. Jerk. And if we lived in a moral and just universe, then maybe he'd be about to get his comeuppance. But this is, of course, the real world. And it doesn't quite work out like that in the real world. The murderous tyrant dies at 90, surrounded by loved ones and puppies. And for Robin, only good things were to come. I'm sorry, I just tell the stories as they happened. With apologies to Lemony Snicket, I suggest that if you want stories where justice wins out, you're better off listening to some other podcast. Robin fled for many days, up the airy mountains, down the rushy glens, until he was far away from a tailor's house, his stolen wine money long since spent. And in some sun-dappled sylvan glen, he slipped into the blissful slumber of the innocent. And there he dreamed, dreamed of indistinct figures in rich, colourful garb which was long out of fashion. All last season's range. And there was the most beautiful music. Music so mesmerising and haunting, it seemed as though, in comparison, all the greatest musicians in the world were unto that player as a busker who plays for cheese and onions. Which was apparently a thing at this time. These Morpheus-sent visions faded, as dreams do and despite his best efforts to stay, Robin awoke, and next to him there was a scroll. It had not been there when he'd gone to sleep, scrolls being uncommon in woods. Robin jumped up, looked around alarmed, wide-eyed, but there was no one to be seen, no hint of movement from the trees. So after a couple of minutes of checking, he gave in to the inevitable, probably assumed a bird dropped it. A secretary bird, maybe? No, that's, no, rubbish, forget I said that. And he opened the scroll. Robin, it began. That's me, thought Robin. Robin, my only son and heir, how to live, take thou no care really? Are we doing this? Are we doing rhymes? Does the Fairy King, Oron do rhymes? He does. By nature thou hast cunning shifts, which I'll increase with other gifts. He was pleased with himself when he wrote this, wasn't he? Wish what thou willst, thou shall it have, and for to vex both fool and knave. Nav. 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 Okay, so I think we can assume some of the rhymes here have been affected by the great vowel shift. If you don't know about it, interesting stuff. Pretty much pronunciation changed. And so rhymes no longer work. So I'm not going to subject you to this any longer. Let's go for a summary of Dad's memo. Basically, the message says that the King of the Fairies was a props of nothing, granting Robin two powers. To have whatever he wished immediately and the power to shapeshift to take the form of any beast or person that he desired. So yeah, pretty cool powers to give this young guy, top level power stuff this, but with that power came responsibility. To only use it to harm knaves and fools, but to love and help honest people. And after granting these powers and setting out this condition, the scroll continued, If thou observe my just command, One day thou shalt see fairyland. So Robin has an incentive to do good here. Though of course, thinking about the legalese, a person being a knave or a fool or honest, who decides that? Is it Robins to decide which is which? If so, then these rules give a great deal of flexibility in interpretation than might be seen at first reading. And then, to finish off, in an act of smashing through the fourth wall like that giant American jug creature, the Fairy King also had a message for you, which he gives to Robin. And by you, I mean my audience listening to this podcast. So you're either my mum or my other listener, and you'll know which you are. For the last line of the scroll read, This more I give. Who tells thy pranks? From those that hear them shall have thanks. Now I wouldn't normally bring this up in a story but it's part of it here because what I believe the fairy king is saying is if you've enjoyed this podcast then please leave a review as it really is the best way to help us out. So, Robin has now got these fairly top tier magical powers and he was pretty overjoyed with them, as he should be. The conditions, hmm, they could come later. Firstly he wished for some meat and then some beer How old is he by now? Dunno, they grow up so fast. Let's definitely assume, given everything that's about to happen, that he is an adult now. And Pop, in front of him was meat and beer. He tucked in. Be good to get out of this forest, he mused. And he wished for a horse. And he transformed into a horse. Okay, wasn't quite what I was going for, said the newly equine Robin. He looked down, puckered his rather impressive lips, nodded approvingly. It'll do. It'll do. And then he got carried away. Wished himself to be a dog, and then a tree, and then a cow. And it was a shame he'd never heard of a Tyrannosaurus. And he kept changing till he was quite sure he had mastered his gift. And then? Then this new robin set out off into the world. <laughs> And the tale now kind of breaks up into short episodes, vignettes, or perhaps sketches from a particularly vulgar and slapstick-oriented show. From the time before sketch shows got all postmodern, ironic and self-referential, and instead they stuck to mother-in-law gags, and that bit with one man carrying a plank, turning around and hitting another man in the face. The classic material, you know. Well, yes, it's like that. We won't touch on all of these in detail, but we'll sample a few for within them are the mad pranks and merry jests Robin is so famed for. First up, Robin fell straight into his new role as HERO. Crossing a field, he heard a cry, a dame in peril. In double-quick time, he ran to the sounds of the screams, and was horrified to find a man forcing himself on a terrified woman. Yep, this gets both dark and silly. Oddly enough, Robin chose to transform into a rabbit at first, and ran between the attacker's legs. As soon as he was placed there, he transformed again into a horse. It is difficult to overstate the deleterious effects of a rabbit transforming into a horse at great speed directly under one's crotch. And there came a sickening crunch of bone and other body parts. But Robin wasn't done yet. And now it's the man's turn to scream as the robin slash horse bore him away and tipped him into a thorny hedge with some force, adding some deep gouges to the man's already quite serious injuries. I imagine that while grateful on one level, the rescued woman also screamed at seeing this magically appearing horse. But in true superhero style, Robin didn't hang around to sort anything out. He gave a winning smile, which is easy as a horse, let out a Ho, ho, ho! And away he went. And yes, the ho, ho, hoing. He had that many centuries before a now more famous ho, ho, hoer. Robin Goodfellow is the original hoer, that other dude, just a pretender. Next up, Robin completely abandons his heroics. It was night, and a bunch of men had been making merry with their sweethearts, and now they all traipsed home together. I don't understand the logistics of where they've been and why they're all coming home together. But they were. Big group of them strolling across the moors, slightly the worse for the drink and following the lights to their own village. Maybe men and women lived in different villages? No, that's nonsense. Maybe the men were each other's sweethearts And they'd be making merry together? I'll leave it, it's just not clear. And all this is beside the point, which is that Robin found them, and decided to play a little game. Not carcass on or ticket to ride this, though. He turned himself into a flickering flame, and the men saw the light, and like moths, they wandered towards it. And then Robin changed, disappeared, and he'd pop up somewhere else. Human torching it again. And they followed him again, because that seemed like the best option. There's a lot about this story I don't understand. If you have answers, please put them on a postcard and don't make them too obscene. And so it went on, during the night. The men freezing, terrified, stumbling around the moors, following the ever-flickering flame. Finally, the first rays of sunlight washed over the exhausted men. And at this, Robin bid those unfortunate chaps farewell, imploring them to tell others of what they had seen that night. Tell them to follow me, Robin, on Instagram for more Mad Merry Pranks. Ho, ho, ho! And that's the end of that story. Just there that's it. This seems like a moment to pause and to revisit those conditions attached to the gifts of power. Punishing knaves. Not clear how we're doing that here, Robin, unless there's some non-fairy like puritanism about unwedded relationships, and that doesn't seem likely. No, you just kind of tormented some people for fun using your powers. Still got to keep them though, didn't you? But to give him his due, in his next adventure, if you can really call it that, Robin would make up for this. I feel like some of these should have titles. Robin and the Maid. In the deeply patriarchal society of pre-modern England, it was usually pretty shocking to be a woman. We've already seen that in this story. With an attempted rape, and with a fairy abandoning a young woman to raise a rather horrible child all alone. And we're going to turn to a young maid. Anne. Anne's domestic situation was... not ideal. Pretty damn terrible, actually. You see, at this time, if you were a woman and you had a parent or guardian, they kind of owned you. They determined what you did, or did not. And there wasn't really the legal oversight of this you'd hope for. Anne was an orphan, and Anne's guardian was her uncle. And there's no easy way to put this. Anne's uncle saw two purposes to his young niece. Firstly, to clean his house and clean it well. And secondly, to one day give herself in to his lust. Yep, we're back in the truly awful territory here. Now, the horrible man wouldn't take her by force. No, he wanted her to submit, quote-unquote, willingly. And while you'd hope she'd just flee, it didn't work like that. He owned her. And the law, as much as you could describe it as such, was on his side, not hers. Anne had one thing going for her, though. She had a lover. She could leave when she got married to him and escape her uncle. But, because of that damned law, she could only do so with said uncle's written permission for the marriage, else it would be regarded as illegitimate by society at large. And the uncle had set down a condition for her to be allowed to wed a condition just as unpleasant as you can imagine. Fortunately for Anne, our mercurial fairy vigilante happened to pass by her and her lover discussing the unfortunate situation in the woods one day. He leapt out from behind a tree. It is I, Robin! I've heard your tale of woe and I can reassure you, I am here to help! The two regarded him much as people in an advert do when a branded mascot shows up and offers to solve everyone's problems through the medium of an obnoxious song about the benefits of a retail comparison service. You know, they were mostly startled, terrified, now unsure of the rules of reality, but also a little curious. And these two weren't just potentially going to save £2.50 a year on their car insurance. It is not right that you two should be kept apart by such a rascal, Mark my words, you shall be happy and together. But but, but how, sir? I must work for my uncle every day. I scarce have moments away like these. And he has his awful lust, she shuddered. I shall see to your work and to this whole problem, I promise you. But don't ask me how or question whether it'll be done or anything. No, you just take yourselves off for 24 hours and in that time find someone to marry you or... Robin corrected himself. Do whatever else you might want to do. Your choice. Ah... Anne opened her mouth to answer and ask more questions. But Robin ploughed on. Now, if you don't take this opportunity, don't accept my offer, then never expect to get the happiness you deserve. I am the one who loves honest men, true lovers, good fellows, good wives, good meat, good drink, and all things that are good, but nothing that is bad. Robin was suddenly engaged in some serious personal brand building here. For I am Robin, Robin Goodfellow, yes. And you shall see I have the power to keep my promise to you. So use this time well, and tomorrow your lives will be changed. Now they might have been sceptical. They probably were sceptical. But when Anne went to reply, Robin turned himself into a horse and rode off in the direction of her house. And that was the kind of practical demonstration that did more to convince than all the words in all the party manifestos in all the world. Anne and her lover, alone again, turned to each other, astonished. Well, let's get on with it then. And within a few hours they'd found an old friar who'd married them on the spot. They hadn't ordered the dress from a tailor with a fairy apprentice and they'd settle down for the night, in some inn with their own modest wedding feast. I really admire their efficient practicality, though I imagine at the back of their mind they were wondering whether our flamboyant shapeshifter was really going to deliver the goods. Robin Goodfellow, as per the appellation he had just awarded himself, was on the way to Anne's house. When he got nearby he did his mystique shtick and became the very spit of Anne. After receiving a stern chiding from the uncle for being out so long, Robin fell to doing all the chores that the man demanded from his niece. And being magical, he did them all pretty fast. So the uncle came up with more chores. He wasn't about to let Anne off for the evening. She might use it to go out. And even though it was far more work than was humanly possible in a night, Robin had it all done in a jiffy. The next morning he popped out briefly to visit the newlyweds, appeared to them as a bird or something, and gave them a thumbs up with strange thumbs at the end of his wings. It's going to plan! And then he disappeared off again. Whether this reassured or worried them, I don't know. When Robin got home, the old uncle was amazed by all the work that had been done, and was feeling better disposed to his niece, and even praised her. In response to this, Robin, toying with the man, took the opportunity. Uncle, there is something I would like to ask you, if I may. Look, I'm going to keep this bit short, because squick factor, but basically, Robin, slash Anne, offers to give the uncle what he wants, as long as he first signs up to a document that says he gives his full and unequivocal support to her and her lover to get married. And to sweeten the deal, he also agrees to give the couple £10 to set them up in life. The uncle agrees to this immediately. He gives the money, signs the letter, drops his trousers, and then goes to embrace his niece to seal the deal. And then, well, then it's morphing time. Robin Goodfellow changes from Anne into a big, strong man. He picks up the terrified uncle, hoists him into the air and carries him off. First he dumps him in a local pond. Then he pulls him out of that pond by his arms, drags him around behind him for a while. Then he turns into a horse, he does like that horse thing, and he rides him around a bit. Just to terrify him that extra bit more. Eventually he takes that lecherous old sex pest to where the young couple are, deposits the wretched man at their feet and gives them a letter of consent for their marriage. And ten pounds, the uncle is full of fear, and you'll not be trying to go back in it or anything, will you asks Robin, still in his strong man form, unmistakable menace in his voice. No, 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 reformed character a eh? nothing like justice for making sinners repent. Well, I guess that's it. Then he turns to leave, turns back again quickly, as if to catch the uncle points at the man. But remember, don't ever try it on again. Ho ho ho! And off he went. What a hero. (laughs) Now at this point in the stories, you might be considering his powers could essentially end world hunger, clothe the poor can create whatever he wants. Surely Robin has the power now to single-handedly alter the fate of humanity and usher in a brave new world where the problems of scarcity are solved. Should he be really just japing around like this, taking on low-level villains? I suppose it's the Batman problem, writ large. And yes he has those powers, but he's not about that. What he is really about is being capricious. So, this unmistakably good deed done, what does he do next? Well, we find him in the house of a weaver, being an apprentice again, working at the loom, learning to weave. You might be saying, our choice for a virtual demigod of all the powers of John Carpenter's The Thing and many more besides, and yes, all agreement here. But you see, the weaver had a wife, and Robin had rather taken to her and being in her house, posing as a normal human, not creepy at all. Eventually, after she showed no interest in him, he sang her a song. It's pretty much a song about why women were awful, I'm not going to repeat it here. And the weaver's wife fell in love with him, because apparently some 17th century version of negging does the trick, and the woman and the fairy hooked up. Eventually, the husband finds out. He tries to kill Robin, Robin escapes, uses a variant of the old bundle of clothes and the bed trick, and the entire episode does not really fit into any narrative about doing good things. But mad pranks and merry jests, am I right lads? Oh yeah. Next, he decided to do some housework. Why not? What is even happening here? What is a story anymore? I don't know. In the night, he would visit farmers' houses. Creep into them, as does that other famous ho-ho-hoa. Not at all weird. And yes, he would do the housework. And this was at a time before doing the housework meant pushing the vacuum cleaner around a bit. No, there was a never-ending series of tasks that needed to be done to maintain even the simplest of households, to make sure everyone was clean and fed. And Robin would do them, while the housewife, or sometimes the servants, slept. He'd break the hemp from which the clothes were made. He'd pick the straws from the flax and do the spinning. All at superhuman speed, of course. And he'd sing while he was doing it, because he wasn't trying to be subtle about this. And because he was being less subtle still, he was naked as he did it all. Yep, everything on display. I'm not sure what happens to his clothes when he transforms anyway. Does he have Hulk pants? Does he transform his clothes? Best not to dwell on it but given his ability to magic up whatever he wants, he could have had some clothes if he'd wanted them. But he didn't. So this naked man did all the work, singing to himself all the while, tackles swinging in the breeze. Naturally, this attracted attention from the maid of a particular farmhouse, and seeing him there, she decided that what he really needed was a set of new clothes. Well, any clothes. She bought some. She set them down for him as a gift, and indicated that they were for him. Look, if I saw a naked man in my house doing all the chores at breakneck speed, my first thought would not be to get him a set of clothes. But we can all understand that this sentiment was a kind one. The maid's attempt to help out this very strange good fellow. Yet Robin's reaction went, no way to acknowledge this. He danced around, sang. I will not be singing, I will recite. Tis not your garments, new or old, that Robin loves, I feel no cold. Had you left me milk or cream, you should have had a pleasing dream. Because you've left me no drop or crumb, Robin never more will come. Because she failed to obey his completely arbitrary and non-communicated gift preference, away he went, leaving the poor woman upset and regretful about her kind actions. You know, like Robin's mum and the tailor beforehand. There is no overriding principle here. There is simply chaos. Have I used the word capricious? I think I have. Let's use it some more. Capricious. Capricious. Despite the conditions in that scroll around his newfound power, Robin continues to act in an unscrutable, almost random manner. Merry tricks indeed. And next? Well, next, he's back to People's Champion, Upholder of Justice, Protector of the Poor and Downtrodden. Because, why not? Let's give this one a title as well. Robin and the Old scrooge A rich moneylender dwelt in a town, and he was penny-pinching to a fault, hoarding his wealth like some loathsome dragon. This was not just a problem for all those in his town who had to watch him get rich, but even for him himself, as he was overcome with that sickness that loves money over its utility. He would eat barely nothing, heat his home with a fire so small that it could barely roast a single sausage, and his clothes and his house he led to ruin. All the while, his wealth built up in the impoverished town. I'll teach him, thought Robin, for some reason. And whipped out the old Scooby-Doo, Scrooge, Edgar Allan Poe triple. You'll see what I mean. Firstly, he took the shape of a huge raven, black and awful. In this form, he came a-tap-tap-tapping against the awful man's chamber window one dark and stormy night. And he cawed and he croaked. The omen of the grave was clear, and the old usurer shuddered and shrank back into his cold chair, trying to ignore the bird, but racked with fear. But this was merely the warm-up act. For later, when the raven was gone, and the man lay asleep, Robin took the form of a ghost, because, yeah, he could do that. And this was medieval ghost, so think less spooky sheet and more awful glowing skeleton with bits of flesh and skin hanging off it. Proper terrifying stuff. The medieval ghost did not mess around. As this ghost he stood at the end of the bed waiting for the man to wake up. Robin coughed. Robin wished for and produced a burning torch to appear in his skeletal hand. The man was suddenly awake saw the vision at the end of his bed and, understandably, was out of his mind with fear. And you know by now that Robin likes to impart lessons through dogger or verse, a trait inherited from his father. So, there's some poetry, which actually pretty much all scans. If thou stirrest out of bed, I do vow to strike thee dead. I do come to do thee good, said the grinning skeleton. The content clashes with the mode of delivery here recall thy wits and starkle blood the money which thou dost up and store in soul and body makes you poor do good with money while you may thou hast not long on earth to stay do good i say or day and night i owly thus will thee affright think on my words and so farewell for being bad i live in hell
1: <laughs>
0: so yeah full on Scrooge here, and as an aside I was genuinely interested to find this much older tale so close to that story. After delivering this little message, Robin the ghost promptly disappeared. There were carrots and sticks there, but the stick clearly played the far more prominent role, and the terrified man was well aware of it, and the next morning he was ordering roast turkeys all over the place, and very soon was a completely reformed character Loved by all. Shame there's not a few more ghost fairies around for the 1% today, eh? And Robin was off again. And, look, here's just an overview of some of the stuff he got up to. He punished a landlord who gave short measures. He would pretend to be a chimney sweep at night, looking for business, but when anyone asked for his service, he'd run away, ho ho hoing, Hilarious. He'd pretend to be a beggar but when people came to give him money, he'd, yep, run away again. (laughs) Oh, Robin, please stop, you're killing us with these gags. He'd knock on doors at night, and when people came out, candlestick in hand, he'd blow it out and disappear. He'd sing an array of songs throughout the towns, bawdy songs, romantic songs, songs that relied on national stereotypes and outdated notions of gender roles for their humour. How mischievous this fairy minstrel was, never accepting payment for these ballads he belted out, but changing into some beast or other, and running or flying or swimming away. Look, I tells it as it is, I don't chance to explain. One occasion when he was doing some impromptu balding is worth a particular note. Off to a wedding, Robin went. Doesn't matter whose. He might have Mission Impossible the face to get in, but get in he did. And what do all weddings need? Obviously, a cheesy disco. Now, unfortunately for those involved, it will be many years before such entertainment was invented. But Robin was there to provide this age's equivalent of the bride's pushy uncle, his record collection, his barely used decks, and the argument about just using someone's phone and the venue's sound system instead. Boy promised him years ago. Just just don't. Just let him do it, okay? So anyway, Robin is at this wedding, which is full of young, lusty lads and pretty lasses. He has taken the form of a fiddler. I mean, that's really just being a fiddler, isn't it? Unless maybe the fiddle itself is part of the transformation and is attached? But doesn't matter. By the by, he is banging out tunes on that fiddle like he's Johnny from Georgia and Vanessa May rolled into one. During dinner, he was called upon to sing one of those slightly risque songs. All cheating wives being caught in flagrante delicto and such like. Cuckolding, back at this time period, was the hot comedy topic. And everyone is loving it. There's dad dancing, there's flirty bridesmaids, Gran's had too much sherry and is getting loud, and there's tunes and singing until candlelight. It's great. And then, oh, he just had to spoil it all. You know, with mad pranks and merry jests. Our friendly fiddler made himself scarce, became barely visible in fact, and blew out the candles. Suddenly the wedding party was plunged into darkness. Then Robin started hitting men and pinching women or kissing them and then merrily darting away and of course what happens next a massive brawl breaks out in the darkness there's confused fighting all over the shop and then Robin lights the candles again everyone pauses mid-punch looks awkward quickly drops fists hides them behind backs and after a bit of shuffling around everyone's the best of friends again and the revelry picks up where it had left off. That's just standard wedding behaviour, you might be saying. That's just people for you, no fairy needed. And it's certainly plausible to suggest there may be metaphorical elements to many of the tales of Robin. But for the purposes of this story, it's all very real. And Robin made things first good them bad, and has probably got the real wedding fiddler bounding gag in the broom closet, so remember that. And what happened next was not so potentially metaphorical. As the wee hours of the morning were reached, the final dish was brought out to those still surviving. It was a huge posset, enough for all the party. A posset, you ask? It's basically a creamy, sweet, lemony, trifly drink thing. That kind of sums it up. It was your big dose of sugar to take the edge off the alcohol before you fall asleep. And Robin saw it, and his eyes lit up. He wanted it all. Wanted it all despite the fact that he could literally wish such a thing into existence. Yeah, haven't used that power much, have you, Robin? And he didn't break that trend now. Nope, he wanted the posset. And to get it, He turned himself into a bear, in the middle of the wedding party. A big, fearsome, terrifying, awful bear. The guests fled in every direction. None of them were pursued by a bear, because Robin was left there, eating the posset, and feeling pretty pleased with himself after a day well spent. He left without taking payment, which one teller of this story seems to kind of praise him for, but given he's just nicked their food, started a brawl and terrified the bejesus out of them all, well, it doesn't seem that generous to me. And off again he went, ho ho -ho hoing into the night. And what you are probably thinking now is, wow, Robin's done so much good. Whenever is he going to get into fairyland like his father promised him? Poor man, waiting so long and being so good. Well, as unlikely as this seems, that was precisely what Oberon was thinking. So one night, when Robin was sleeping off another day's capriciousness, his father called to him. And of course he sung him another verse, because inside every fairy is William McGonagall ready to burst out at a moment's notice. Robin, my son, come quick, rise First stretch, then yawn, then open your eyes I, I, This is painful For thou must go with me into the night To see and taste of my delight Steady on, Dad already had one incest storyline in this And that's quite enough Quickly come, my wanton son To a time our sports were now begun Stop it, stop it Up shot Robin, and there were people all around him His father, with many strange and wondrous fairies, clad in fine green silks with silver bells and general flamboyant fairy get-up. And off they whisked Robin for a dance. The tiny Tom Thumb played tiny pipes, made from the parts of woodlouses and wrens. But this diminutive instrument gave one hell of a sound. There was a ring of blurring, spinning bodies in the forest night. Up amongst them in the dark treetops... Owls hooted and ravens called. And on the grass there was light, music and merriment. And what happens now is kind of like... Well, it's like that first day induction in the office where... You meet everyone and get told their names and what they do and you kind of nod along and forget. If, instead of Ahmed from Sales and Janet from Operations, it was, well, all the denizens of Fairyland. And in case you've still got images of the fairies or the elves, as we discussed all the way back in Thomas the Rhymer, this isn't like that. These fairies are a mishmash of different beings. Yes, some of them are kind of humanoid elves, but there's also tiny little brownies and horrible goblins and everything else aside. And they're all going to tell Robin exactly what their role is in the Great Fairy Corporation. Hello Robin, I am the unimaginatively named Pinch, and I do as my name suggests. I creep around at night, and if the door of a house is left open, in I go. And I find whoever left it open, and I pinch them. Pinch, pinch, pinch. I genuinely can't recite this bit without doing little pinchy crab claw motions with my hands. Other times I perhaps find someone who has not done their chores, sleeping in the corner when they should be washing dishes, and you know what I do to them? Er, pinch them? asked Robin. No, I, pi, yes, yes, pinch, how could you tell? Pinch, pinch, pinch till they're black and blue, lazy so-and-sos. Uh, and if someone goes to bed with their stockings on, well, I will not have truck with such beastliness. Pinch, 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 slovenly stocking sleeper. Ha ha. But I never do any pinching to good people, just the bad slovenly ones. And I am patch, and I creep around at night looking for lazy slovenly types. Those don't comb their hair, for instance. I cut their hair really close or cover their hair in pitch so they have to do it. And what does Patch do to people who don't feed their dogs? I'll cover them with grease and soot. Okay. And I am Gull. And where mortals keep their beds, I walk abroad. So you creep around at night like the others? Well, yes, I suppose that's one way to put it. But I do like all the really dark stuff. Like all that pinching and and stuff... I lie on people's stomachs and cause them great pains. And I give them nightmares. Okay, yeah. And I steal their children and leave changelings in their place to torment them. Wow, that is definitely. Sometimes I steal bread and cheese as well. Do you know, after the child thing, said Robin, that didn't add anything. I'm grim. I walk with the owl. Um, you, you come out at night got it yep and i wail at the windows of the sick or appear as a great black beast in the midst of people reveling i've done that one said robin classic yeah a female fairy spoke up next i am sib and me and my sisters tib lick and lull Can you get more twee? We take the fairy children to mortal houses for some reason. And because the whole fairy species is utterly obsessed with cleanliness and laziness, if we find there is clean water and towels in a place, well, we leave gifts of money for the household. Leave it in shoes or basins. But if it's a dirty house, we wash our children in their beer and in their soup. So you find a dirty house and you make it worse, Yes. Also, we have a payday loans company on the side. What? Yes. If mortals need money, they come to the hill, and we'll just give it to them. Proper wonga style. But if they don't bring it back in time, do you know what we do? Pinching! Lots of pinching! All over them till they bloody well pay it back. APR? And your percentage rate? No. And your pinching rate? Yes. And then Tom Thumb, the tiny, teeniest, isn't he so cute Tom Thumb, stood up. In which he wasn't actually a fairy, but who knows, by this point none of this really makes any sense at all. And as Tom Thumb told his tale, a shepherd from a nearby field blew upon his bagpipes, something that shepherds regularly do. And Tom Fum, despite living with a group of people whose admitted hobbies ranged from the slightly distasteful to the brutally homicidal, was so frightened by these bagpipes that he could not continue his story. So of course they went and, in some kind of invisible way, loosened the shepherd's pipes so they broke in the poor man's hand. Ho Ha ha ha! laughed Robin madly, looked around. And suddenly he felt something that had been missing from his life all these years. He felt a sense of belonging. A sense of home. This was a group of people he was really going to get along with. Robin was united with the fairies, where he was always meant to be. And away he went with them to fairyland. A charmed life he had. And many more mad pranks and merry jests awaited Robin Goodfellow. Well, that was kind of a hot mess wasn't it and also the longest single episode on this podcast despite my promises and can you tell i'm becoming less sure about the methods i'm using to choose these stories and my editing process but let's set that aside for a moment and delve into some of the history of this story and despite its peculiarities This is one of those stories where to fully place it into its appropriate context requires probably years of research and volumes of books to be written about it. And I'm going to try and condense that down to some major points here. One of the reasons I did pick this story is because, odd as it is, within this tale are a whole host of other stories that really have helped form fairy lore in Britain. They're a kind of good representation of British fairy stories though probably not the Robin Goodfellow element of them. But let's set that aside. The raw facts of the story I've just told is that it's a shortened version of a 1628 manuscript, Robin Goodfellow, His Mad Pranks and Merry Jest, from which, as well as removing a framing narrative with a strange bit about Kentish long tales, I've also removed all the songs. Now, according to some work done by podcast favourites Victorian folklorists, Some version of this tale was printed well before 1588, though how close the versions printed then were to this version, very difficult to tell. This manuscript has a very particular interpretation of Robin Goodfellow character, who evidence rather suggests was widely known as a folkloric figure, and in fact just a character in lots of popular stories. So some form of Robin Goodfellow was generally in the zeitgeist and used by lots of different writers and it's at this point where lots of people might be shouting at me Shakespeare And yes, we definitely need to mention Puck here So Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream was written in 1595 or 1596 so it predates the manuscript we're referring to here by a significant period of time, some 30 years or so so it's very likely that these tales are influenced by Shakespeare's interpretation, but also that they both have a common source in this general idea of Robin Goodfellow. So, to back up a bit, particularly if you're not familiar with the work, A Midsummer Night's Dream has a character called both Puck and Robin Goodfellow at different times. Now, the Robin Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream is simply a fairy. There's no human origin story like there is here, but he does all the same kind of things that our Robin does, plus a lot of those things that were mentioned at the end of the tale that the other fairies did, generally tormenting humans, playing merry pranks and tricks, and also being Oberon's right-hand man, rather than his son. So yes, they're probably both using Robin legends, The very earliest mention of Robin in print is 1531, but various bits of text basically make it pretty clear that stories of Robin were well known, at least throughout the 1500s. Now Robin, and more particularly these stories, fit into a much wider fairy mythology. And to understand what these stories are we really need to look at this. Because both Robin in this story and Shakespeare's Robin are kind of at a critical point of change in fairy lore and Robin is a great example of that change where lots of mythologies which were kind of disparate are pulled together into a certain idea of fairies the history of fairies, elves and all the associated creatures which we tend to kind of group together is very complicated and contains many threads some of which are quite disparate Now, what do we even mean when we're talking about fairies? Now, there's no strict definition, but I've kind of got my own, at least as far as the folklore of the British Isles. Probably can be pulled apart, but a race of beings which are sentient, with language, pretty much humanoid, definitely magical, but they're not human, they're not divine, and they're not infernal demons. They're something else. That's the category of things we're talking about here, but does that even really make sense as a category? We're just lumping everything in together. And the reason we do that is probably something to do with how all those tales came together. But what do you have feeding into that idea? To really race through this, and just to concentrate on the British Isles again, you've got elves, which are Germanic or Norse, Germanic and Norse in origin, and they seem to have some association with illness earlier on, and later elves are also seen as inhabiting a courtly otherworld, which is itself reminiscent of bits of Celtic mythology as well. And these elves have been around well over a thousand years. You've then got, for want of a better description, non-Christian nature spirits of inconvenience, maliciousness, nastiness. These are creatures like the Tolo of Teg of Welsh folklore or the Piskies of Cornish folklore. They steal children, they lead travellers astray, they make cows sick, they do a 101 other things that you don't want happening in your life. But you've also got the helpful version of them, that is, the brownies or portunes, half-spirits that keep your house clean, that if you reward them, they will reward you. And of these kind of spirits, well, we've got writers in the 1100s and 1200s talking about belief in them and giving accounts of them. To add into this mix, we also have beings specifically from Celtic mythology, who might be considered gods but mostly fit into a slightly different category. The She of Irish mythology are probably the most prominent here, living in their other world in the barrows and occasionally interacting with humans. There's also a kind of literary fairy, or indeed elf, which is knocking around between the 12th and 15th centuries in many tales. So, a few hundred years there. They crop up in romances. Take Oberon, for instance. He first crops up in an epic French poem, as well as today's story in Shakespeare's version, and there he's basically a magical dwarf. And at some point he's said to be the child of Morgan Le Fay and, get this, Julius Caesar, which is one hell of a family. Morgan le Fay, as the name suggests, also fits into this category. A legendary, descended from fairies, it's a bit unclear, but she's very magical, kind of human character. And on top of all this, you've also got similarish creatures to lots of these categories that come from classical religion and mythology, Greece via Rome to so Britain. Lairies are household spirits, and you've got nymphs and fauns, which are similar-ish again. And I've realised we've not even talked about Green Man iconography. What's the point of all this rambling, and how does it relate to the story we've told today? So the major takeaway is that there are lots of diverse legends, folklore, stories that are separate from each other to a greater or lesser extent, but which at some point, before our story, get mashed together to create figures like Robin Goodfellow or Puck, who essentially try to embody all these disparate traits in one character. Which is probably why the whole thing is a kind of narrative mess. It's really lots of different stories, but just with one face puts them. This is why Robin is so capricious, why he leads people astray like a will-o'-the-wisp, but also does the cleaning like a brownie. He's just a kind of blank slate on which these legends have been written. And, probably at least in part because of the oversized importance to English culture of the Elizabethan and Jacobean stage, in particular Shakespeare, this idea of fairies has kind of stuck around as embodying all these tropes. And Robin Goodfellow is a prime example. He is the type-case of a whole load of traditions inelegantly sellotaped together and just about holding. And that was the story you heard today. So I hope this whirlwind pop folklore thesis of mine kind of makes some sense. As always, please bear in mind that this section is referred to as decidedly inexpert for a very good reason. There are lots of good sources on the internet about fairy lore. Start with uh, Folklore Thursday or British Fairies if you're interested. Now at this point I'd normally discuss the story itself, but I think you probably got most of my impressions going through it. I could see how, in the right context, it was probably quite funny and even engaging, especially if performed with the songs, which I left out not only because I can't sing, but also because they're mostly horrendously misogynistic and otherwise problematic by modern standards. So we'll leave it there. I hope you enjoyed it, despite everything. Just one small thing to add before we go. The podcast has begun to receive a couple of requests for a Patreon or something similar, and this is surprising, absolutely lovely, and kind of weird, but it's a really nice feeling, and following that I'm looking to get something set up very soon. Any small amount that I did get from that, I would put back into the podcast, and enhance it in some way. Separately, I'm already considering commissioning art for some of the rarer tales that we've told, a lot of which really haven't been illustrated much since the early 20th century, and anything we do get will probably go to support that. But thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed the podcast. That is probably the most helpful and also the nicest thing you can do, and I really appreciate reading every review. Okay, we're pretty much done. Ho, ho, ho. Next time, on this irregular release cycle, we'll have a few different tales about the oldest traces of humanity on these islands. Mysterious, ancient, or just some people trying to enjoy themselves on a Sunday. Yep, we're talking stone circles. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandisland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.